Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right. Hopefully that doesn't fall on me there. Ah, good to go. Well, let me, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is, uh, is Chris Elliott. It is a delight for, uh, for me to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm one of the pastors at Logos Community Church in Harlingen. And as you know, if you've been around Storehouse or when it was Logos in McAllen, if you've uh, been around any length of time, you know there is a long relationship that we have together. So Marco's away playing around, doing some cool stuff about, uh, I think he's learning skills on how to survive off the land and eat worms and all kind of <laughs> weird stuff. So definitely we want to continue to lift him up in prayer. But uh, please join me in prayer and uh, we'll get started this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, creator, giver of life, sustainer of life, lover of our soul. Lord, in, a, in our weakness this morning as we, as we come before you, Lord, would you prove yourself to be strong? Help us to understand you. Lord, in our ignorance, show yourself to be wise. Lord, help us to see how how beautiful and big and mighty and awesome that you are as we open up this passage of scripture this morning. Our our greatest desire is to, to want to honor you, not to ascribe something that's not due you, but to have a greater awareness of who you are. And so Lord, bless, bless our time as we open your word, bless your word challenge us, encourage us, convict us, whatever you need to do in the hearts of your people this morning, we ask that you would do it, and at the end of the day, that you would receive the glory and honor that you are due. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray, amen. I don't know if, uh, if you are aware, but we are definitely living in some, some challenging times most of the people in America today have all but forgotten the great works of God in our country. You know, our, our nation right now is in great moral and spiritual decline. We, we seem to be in a, in a downward spiral with no end in sight. The church at large is very weak. Oftentimes, the church at large looks just like the world we live in. We live in a day of cheap grace. We live in a day of easy believism where where the gospel is so freely corrupted, truth is outright rejected, and yet there is no denying that God has visited and blessed our nation in the past. Oftentimes in horrible decline to bring about great spiritual revival. And so our day, in that sense, it's not a whole lot different than Habakkuk's day. That there was no denying that God had done some wonderful and amazing and powerful works of revival in the life of his people in the past. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2, verses 2 and 3. 
Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So listen to how God describes the nation of his holy people. He describes them as holy. They were holy before him. They loved him. They were devoted to him. But as time went on, something happened. Because Habakkuk was now living in a time, hundreds of years removed from when God was reflecting back through Jeremiah of what his people used to be like, Habakkuk's now living in some very challenging and difficult times. The, the, the southern kingdom of Judah was spiraling out of control. Violence and crime were on the rise. The legal system was falling apart. Justice was nowhere to be found. They had openly embraced pagan religion. They had openly engaged in pagan worship. I mean, they were practicing witchcraft. They were offering their children as sacrifices to foreign gods. They had rejected outright the one true God. They had rejected his word. They had rejected all of the prophets that God had sent previously to warn God's people. And so with each passing day, it really seems that they're moving faster away from God and deeper into wickedness. Now sure, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, they still wanted God's favor, right? I mean, who, who, who wouldn't want God's favor? Who wouldn't want that? They still wanted all of his blessings. They still wanted all the good stuff that came along with that, just like we do. They just weren't interested in his holiness because his holiness required that they deal with their sin and they didn't have time for that. And so Habakkuk's contemporaries, the prophets of Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, they all wrote about, at the same time period, all wrote about the exact same thing as Habakkuk was. Sin was reigning in the land. God had been rejected. Their hearts had departed from God. They refused to repent. And so God raised up prophets to warn his people. And these prophets, they would go and they would proclaim and they would say, hey guys, you need to listen up. You need to get serious. God is holy. He alone is sovereign and in control. He will not be mocked. He may be patient now, but justice will prevail. Sin will be punished. Repent while you still have time. Return to me while you still have time. Be restored back to God while you still have time. Listen to how the prophet Amos puts it. He says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I don't think there, there is a scarier passage of Scripture in all of the Bible than Amos 4, verse 12. Almost 200 years prior to Habakkuk's time, God graciously reminds his people through Amos, reminding his people in the northern kingdom of Israel, 
He said, hey, I've allowed all of these calamities to take place in your life. I've allowed famine. I've allowed drought. I've allowed disease. I've allowed your enemies to prevail against you. And I've allowed all of those things into your life to take place because I was trying to get your attention to help you see that, hey, you need to stop rebelling against me. You need to deal with your sin. You need to repent and be restored back to me. But because you did not return, prepare to meet your God. And what he's saying is, hey, judgment is coming. It's coming swiftly, and it's going to be severe. Do you think they listened? Do you think they listened to the prophet Amos? Think they connected the dots when, when God laid out, hey, this is the work that I've been doing among you to try to get your attention. No, they, they didn't connect anything. They didn't see anything. So what did God do? He raised up the Assyrian Empire. And in 722 BC, they would be his instrument of judgment. They would swarm down on the northern kingdom of Israel and they would devour the nation like a bunch of locusts. And so the the people of Habakkuk's day, they're not any different. You would think that, okay, maybe I should learn from somebody else's mistake. They didn't learn. They, They knew what had happened. And so Habakkuk, knowing what had already happened to to Israel, knowing the spiritual condition of his own people, wrestles through some, some very difficult questions about God. He says, God, don't you see what's going on here, God? Just look around. Do do you see what's happening? Why do you appear to be so indifferent to the sins of your people? Why do you let it continue? Why do the wicked continue to prosper? Why don't you do something about all the suffering and the violence that's taken place? I mean, haven't you heard my prayers in the past about all the mess of your people? Are you even awake up there? And so two different times, Habakkuk goes to God. And he's got some questions. And and really, I think what he's got is he's got some complaints against God. And when he goes to God, I love it because God doesn't really provide any answers to the questions that he asks. He responds, but he didn't answer any of the questions that Habakkuk asks. So much like Job, in essence, Job asked a bunch of questions of God. God didn't really provide any answers to those. He responds, but doesn't provide any answers. In essence, what what he's saying is that, hey, you don't really need to know all that stuff. You don't. All you really need to know is me and know that my grace is sufficient for you. And what he tells him in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 that, hey, the righteous shall live by faith. Hey, Habakkuk, you're just going to have to trust me. You're just going to have to walk with me and trust me. And so that's how Habakkuk begins But that's not the way that it ends. He asks these questions in God's response. And so if you read chapters one and two and break into chapter three, we begin to see a transition take place. 
Well, we see a transformation in Habakkuk. We see that Habakkuk begins to mature. He, he moves from question mark to exclamation points. He, he begins by questioning God, but he ends by trusting God. He moves from, from fear to faith. He begins by worrying about the evil world around him, but he ends by worshiping God. He, he begins by being discouraged with all the doom and the gloom that he knows is coming, but he ends by being overwhelmed by the glory of God. And so chapter three is really the culmination of the entire book. It's the climax of what God's been doing. It's the destination of a journey that began in the valley of darkness in chapter one. And tucked right in the middle of this transition is one of the most beautiful prayers in the entire Bible. But before we get into his prayer, I wanna touch briefly on his approach to God before he prays. Habakkuk 2, verses 19 and 20. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. One of the things that has matured in Habakkuk is his deep sense of humility. When he began his complaints against God, they were really kind of directed outwardly. That they, they were initially about his fellow countrymen. Look, how, look at how violent that those guys are. Look at their injustice. I'm surrounded by all of these wicked people. And God responds, yeah, I know. I see the problem, and, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of that problem by raising up the Babylonians to deal with them. And so Habakkuk responds back to God, and he says, hey, now, don't, don't get carried away, God. I mean, sure, we deserve discipline, but can we, can we choose option two? We don't really want it to come that way. The Babylonians, are, they're even more wicked, more depraved, more sinful than your own people. How in the world can you use someone more unrighteous to judge your own people? And God is like, yeah, I know. I'm gonna deal with them as well. Believe me when I tell you, Habakkuk, that the wicked will not go unpunished. I will deal with them in the appropriate time. And then as we approach chapter three, I think we see a, a change taking place. We see the humility in Habakkuk really being bore out because he's no longer focused on those around him. It's no longer about the sin that's out there with those people or that country, that group of people. He's no longer or comparing himself on this ladder of performance, seeing how many rungs higher he is above everybody else. A change has taken place. I believe when we get to chapter three, he rightly sees the wickedness of his own heart before God. And his eyes are like laser focused on God as he sits on his throne. Notice what he says. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk's not skipping around 
You know, he's not expecting the angelic host to create this tunnel where he can go running through. And he's not passing out high fives. He, he's, he's not treating God like he's a common buddy. He's not showing up and saying, hey God, here I am. Look at me, look at how awesome that I am. Listen to what I've got to say and get ready to do what I want. That's not how he approaches God. That's how oftentimes we approach God. Very casually, very arrogantly. Like like we're really the one on the throne, we're really God and God's responsibility is to respond to us and do what we want. That's not how Habakkuk approaches God. His approach is one of deep humility. Utter silence is what he says. And that's what happens when you understand that you're in the presence of the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe who has such absolute power that he can speak everything you see around you into existence by speaking it making something out of nothing. He's in the presence of that kind of power. Who are we in light of that? Silence is the only thing that happens. Why? Because he already understands something that Jesus would say years later. There is no one good except God. He already understands what Paul would say later on in Romans. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Silence is the only thing that happens when you see your sin in light of the holiness of God. I think this is where true prayer begins. It begins with a a proper orientation to God. Seeing ourselves, seeing our sin rightly before God. It begins with humility. And so Habakkuk begins his prayer. Habakkuk chapter three, verses one and two. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We're just going to break it down little by little, kind of unpack what Habakkuk is talking about here. He starts off, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk actually begins his prayer with the reminder of all that that God had done in the past. So he's, he's hearing God's voice. He's being reminded of the history of God's people and how God's sovereign and mighty hand was in complete control the entire time in the life of his people. And what's his response? When he hears God's voice and he sees this playing out in front of him, what's his response? He stands in awe of God's glory. That's always been the response all through time. When you're reading God's word and somebody is confronted by the glory of God, there comes over them an overwhelming sense of awe, a, a holy fear. Daniel said, 
There remained no strength in me. Ezekiel declared, when I saw it, when I saw God's glory, I fell on my face. Isaiah cried out. He said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The beloved John, he confessed, hey, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the only response worthy of a mortal man when he stands in God's presence and sees his glory. That's what Habakkuk is saying. He said, hey, when I was reminded, when I heard the report of your fame, when I saw your glory in all of it, all I could do was stand in awe. So what's what's he been reminded of? Well, he was reminded of God's deliverance in Egypt through those 10 powerful plagues that God brought about. He was reminded of those walls of water that God caused to stand straight up while his people crossed on dry ground. And then once they were safely on the other side, caused those walls of water to come crashing back down on the world's most powerful military at that time, Egypt. He was reminded how God cast out all of those heathens before his people as they were coming into the promised land. He was reminded of of God's remarkable favor and love and grace and how God had provided for his people over and over and over again. How he had rescued his people time and again. But he was also reminded that God's a jealous God. He was reminded how God's people had provoked God time and time again by the rebellion and their sin. He was reminded of the tremendous weight of guilt that rested on his people. He was reminded that God is holy and how he can't be in the presence of iniquity lest he break out against them and consume them like a fire. He was reminded how an entire generation died off in the wilderness when God would not allow them to enter into the promised land because of their lack of faith and unwillingness to obey and follow where God was leading. He was reminded of all the tyrants that God had raised up in the land of Canaan because of their wickedness, to be a thorn in their side, and on and on. What he's doing is he's watching the entire history of God's people play out before his eyes. Coupled with that was the conversation that Habakkuk's been having for the last two chapters. Add to it the Babylonian empire that he now knows is being raised up by God to discipline his people. And what does he see? He sees God's sovereignty above all else. He sees God's mighty hand behind every single bit of it. And he's deeply moved because he sees God's glory in all of it. And he's in awe of God. So the first thing Habakkuk does is he remembers the past. He remembers the past, the sovereign and mighty works of God. He continues, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. It's kind of a strange phrase if you think about it. In the midst of the years. And what in the world is is Habakkuk? talking about there in the midst of the years what he's doing is 
he is remembering all the way back to the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, that it would be through Abraham's line, through his family, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. That it would be through his lineage that the promised Messiah would ultimately come, that Jesus would arrive. Listen to how Paul describes it. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the the fullness of time really spans from the time that the promise was given to Abraham until the fulfillment of that promise which that's the advent of Jesus. That's when Jesus arrives. And so that span is about 1,500 years. And Habakkuk sees himself in the middle of that span of time and he remembers the promise of God. But he also remembers that that promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. That the Messiah hadn't shown up yet. He hadn't arrived. And so Habakkuk, standing on the promise of God, prays to God, confessing that, hey, although... God's people rightly deserve to be completely destroyed because of their sin, he begs for mercy. Asking that that he not completely remove the life of his people in the midst of the years. While God's plan is still unfolding, he's praying that God continue with his mighty work right up until the end. That, That he finishes what he started when he gave Abraham that promise and adopted Israel to be his own special people. What he's, really, what he's really asking for, and please don't miss this, what he's really asking for is revival in the midst of the darkest of times. He's asking for revival. Habakkuk, he remembers the promise. That's what he's, that's what he's asking for here. But yet he also recognizes the deadness of his own people. Spiritually, he sees their great need. They have a callous heart, completely desensitized, completely incapable of responding to God in that condition. So what do they need? They need life breathed back into them. They they need revival. And that's what he's asking for. He's saying, God, all of that work that you did in the past... Do it again in our day. We want to see it afresh. We want to see it anew. In the same way that you showed yourself to your people in the past, show yourself like that again in our day. Show us your glory. Pour out your spirit upon us. Make yourself known in the midst of your people. Cause us to turn away from darkness and run to the light. Deal with our sin. Reveal your power in us. Save us. Revive us. Restore us. In the middle of our situation, God, please revive your people and do it in such a spectacular way that the entire world sees your glory and knows it's from you. The first thing he does is he remembers the past. The second thing that he does in his prayer is he stands on the promise continues in wrath remember mercy (laughs) my son's not with us today my my oldest son Uh, it's a it's a funny story when he was 
probably seven years old. Uh, he had done something horrible. You know, I don't know if he told a lie or I can't remember what it was, but he had done something just really awful. And, and so it was daddy's responsibility to come in and um, restore him through discipline. But yet, something really stood out in this situation. God really impressed upon me. That's great, he understands discipline. But hey, teach him more about me. And so, my son, I mean, he's got, you know, it's not coming out of his nose, and he's crying. He knows what's coming. And so I sit with my son on his bed, and, and I'm trying to help him to understand the gospel. And I'm sharing with him, hey, I, this is what you deserve. Mommy and Daddy deserve that. All of creation deserves that because of our sin against God. But son, I want to teach you about the grace of God and the mercy of God. Even though you, are, you deserve to be disciplined, spanked, you deserve that. I'm not going to give that to you. Because I want you to understand and experience God's grace and God's mercy in Jesus. And so instantly he's got a big smile and he's, he's, he's realizing, whew, you know, I've, I'm not going to die today. And so some, some amount of time goes on. I don't know if it was a couple months. He had done something really dumb again and, and it's time, okay, dad's got to step in. And, and I would always kind of go over with my kids, hey, do you understand what you have done? I want, the, the pain of being disciplined, I want you to understand that was the, the similar pain that Jesus went through on the cross but to a much higher degree because of sin, I don't want you to ever forget that. And so we're talking about it, and it's time. And so, son, I want you to stand up and turn around. And again, he's got the, you know, the boogers, and cry, he's crying real bad. And, and at, just before I'm, I'm about to spank him, he turns around, and he said, Dad, what happened to Grace? <laughs> and of course, I, I can't spank him after that. I, I don't, I'm caught. I said, I didn't prepare for this. I don't know what to do next. Let me ask you, did, did my son deserve to be spanked because of his sin? Absolutely he did. I mean, he had sinned against his father. Ultimately, he had sinned against his heavenly father. In that moment, when I poured out my wrath, discipline, when I poured out my wrath because of his sin, when I poured it out on my son, did he cease being my son in that moment? Still my son. And after everything was said and done, did I ever stop loving my son? No. I, I don't discipline my son because I hate my son. I do it because I love my son. But the sin's got to be addressed. The sin has to be dealt with. There is no other way. It's the sin that I hated it's the sin that I poured my wrath out against. But I do it for the sake of my son because I care about the character of my son. Habakkuk, he sees the storm clouds. They're gathering. They're, they're really ominous. They're dark. They're scary. He sees the flashes of lightning at a distance. He can hear the rolls of thunder coming. He knows that God's anger towards his people is just because of their sin. 
He, he understands to some degree that justice is already worked into the plans and purposes of God. And so he pleads with God, but he pleads a certain way to God. He says, God, as you give us what we deserve, as you judge us and pour out your wrath against us, yes, we deserve it, but please don't ever forget about your mercy in the midst of it. Don't forget to demonstrate your compassion and your mercy as well. Notice what he doesn't ask for in that moment. This is really interesting. He didn't ask that God remove his wrath. He knows the people deserve God's wrath, deserve to be disciplined because of their sin, because of their rebellion. He doesn't even ask that God judge the Babylonians. I mean, that would make sense, right? Okay, God, that, that's fine. Raise them up. Let them be a tool to discipline us. Get that. We deserve it. It's medicine. I don't really want to take it, but I know it's best for me. But God, make sure you get them good. <laughs> he, he doesn't pray that God judge them either. And he doesn't even ask for his own deliverance in the midst of it. What he's really asking for, what he's really asking for is that God's glory be revealed in all of it. Moses did the same thing. You know, the people that he was leading out of the promise, God was leading through Moses. I mean, they were throwing another temper tantrum as they were wandering around. And so Moses is dealing with that. And God's like, man let, me, man, let me come in there, Moses, and I'll wipe them out. We'll start all over. This is how Moses pleads with God on their behalf. He said, and now, please let the, the power of the Lord, Numbers chapter 14, verses 17 to 19, and now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt up until now. Moses is asking the exact same thing that Habakkuk is, that God not be so consumed by his righteous anger that he'd ever forget about his own mercy. And so the first thing that Habakkuk does is he remembers the past. The second thing that he does is he stands on the promise. Do, do you, as you go through that prayer, do you get a sense of urgency in Habakkuk? That, hey, it wasn't good enough, all those great things that God had done in the past. God, we want to see them again in our day. How did Habakkuk approach God? He approached him humbly. He approached him with an attitude of worship, with an ultimate surrender to his will, does that sound like any prayer we know about in the New Testament? Is Jesus the, is giving his disciples a model prayer? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So how did he pray? 
He remembered all that God had done. He remembered all that God had promised. And he remembered all that God had provided. So that's Habakkuk's prayer. It's really short. It's very sweet. It's extremely powerful. Let, Let me summarize it like this. Remembering the sovereign work of God in the past enables us to stand on the promises of God today, which empowers us to hope for the mercy of God tomorrow. Listen to that again. Remembering the sovereign work of God in the past enables us to stand on the promise of God today, which empowers us to hope for the mercy of God tomorrow. Think about that for a second. What's that all pointing to? The sovereign work of God? The promises of God? The mercy of God? What's that all pointing to? Yeah. It's pointing to the cross. They all converge on the cross of Jesus because that's the place where the justice of God and the love of God, that's the place where the wrath of God and the mercy of God beautifully collide to our benefit. It's the cross of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the sovereign work of God. That's what the promises of God, that's what the mercy of God, that's what they're all about. They're all pointing to Jesus. He's where they find their ultimate fulfillment. That's what the gospel's all about. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die on the cross? He died to demonstrate God's justice because God can never allow sinners into his holy presence without an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice to deal with the heart of the issue, which is sin. So Jesus died, he hung on that cross as a display of God's justice and wrath against sin. He also died as a display of love and mercy because the wrath of God, it didn't fall on the sinners who deserved it. We deserved it, not Jesus. The wrath of God fell on the only one who didn't deserve it. The unblemished, the perfect substitute, the Lamb of God, it fell on His Son, Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, do you know for sure that you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Do you know for sure that you've trusted, that you have faith? You know, faith, not just mental assent, not agreeing to the facts about something, because even the demons recognize who Jesus is. They know full well what he did. Faith is is putting the full weight of hope and expectation into something. It always requires action. Well, let me get you to stand up for a second. Sit back down. Whether you realize that is biblical faith. You put the full weight of hope and expectation that that chair was not going to fail you in your time of need. You don't know anything about the engineer. You don't know anything about the craftsman who put that thing together. And so faith requires action. 
Do you know for sure that you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Have you come to the point in your life where you realize that if it wasn't for Jesus that you would suffer and die under the wrath of God? Have you come to that place yet? You know, someone has to pay for sin. They do. Sin has to be paid for. God gives us a choice. You, you, can, you can have faith. We just talked about what faith was. You can have faith that everything that God tells us about Jesus, about everything that he accomplished, he accomplished and provided on the cross is everything that you need to be saved. Or you can reject Jesus and you can pay for sin yourself. You can let Jesus do it and be saved by faith. Or you can reject that and one day you will suffer for sin yourself. Last question, have you found mercy in Jesus? Have you found mercy in Jesus? Listen to a story that Jesus tells about about two men who were looking for mercy. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the the other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Will be exalted. So one man is trying to find the mercy of God by climbing the ladder of performance. He's saying, hey, look at me. Look at everything that I've done. I go to church every week. You know, I give 10% every week. I serve in some capacity. I've not done any of the really bad sins. He's basing all of that on performance. (laughs) Sounds kind of silly when you when you put it that way, huh? That the guy is trying to climb a ladder of performance to appease God's wrath. The other man realizes he doesn't have the strength to to climb that ladder of performance. And that what he really needs Jesus to do is climb down the ladder of grace to meet him where he is in the middle of his sin. If, if you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, please don't leave here today. P- please talk to me. Talk to one of the other leaders in this church. Hey, today is the day of salvation. So surrender your life to God today. Yield to God today. Repent to God today. Our family was reminded anew this past week that life is short. A family we had known for a very long time. 17-year-old daughter went out, never came back. You never know when your last breath 
will be. Today is the day of salvation. If you have trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, hey, please pray like Habakkuk. Pray for revival. Pray for revival in this church. Pray for revival in this land, in McAllen, in your schools, in your families. Pray for the heart of God's people that they would repent, that they would turn from their wicked ways and return to their first love. Pray that God's people would yearn for one thing above all else, that the glory of God would be known around the world. Pray like that. Let's close. Please join me in prayer. God, what a, what a short prayer, but God, what a, what a powerful prayer. There, there, there is probably no greater prayer for the sinner to come before you than to remember in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. God, thank you for the the work, the accomplished work on the cross for us, that the wrath of God fell on the only one who did not deserve it, you. You you took the price that we deserve to pay upon yourself. God, how can we not but be in awe of that? How can we not be broken by that? God, I, I pray that as we've looked at this prayer of Habakkuk, of remembering the the mighty works that you've done in the past, of, of standing on those mighty promises of God today and hoping for mercy in the future, that God, you would reorient our hearts and our minds towards you, deal with the sin that takes us away from you, deal with it radically restore us back to you, God. Revival, it tarries in our land and and in our families because the heart of your people have not returned to you. Do a work in us first.